0: You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all.
1: How many threads take us through the ages, out of the darkness, into the light? I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, Bill Morris, the author of The Age of Astonishment, joins us right away and after the break Stacey Murphy stops by to discuss her novel The Unquiet Dead Bill Morris is the author of the novels Motor City and Motor City Burning he's currently a staff writer with the online literary magazine The Millions and Bill it's a pleasure to meet you I've heard a lot about you and I thoroughly enjoyed the book
2: Oh, thank you, Larry. That's awfully sweet. I'm glad to be here.
1: So, I don't know if you're a fan of podcasts in general. When I'm working out or just taking a break from working on my research for my next project, my next book, I listen to WTF, which is Mark Marone's podcast. And he had an episode where he's interviewing Rosie Perez. And he's very forthcoming about his life and she is very, very forthcoming about her life in terms of, you know, Houston, California to promote something she's working on and the conversation fascinates me. So I thought about you and the the narrative of your book and on a personal level, who do you trust to tell the story of the Morris family because we're just meeting for the first time.
2: Uh, who do I trust? Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a tough one because... Um, You know, I've got all these relatives who who I haven't heard from in years, but who I got in touch with when I was researching the book. And I started to realize that everybody in the family has this great vested interest in the telling of this story and and the narrative of these people, especially the central figure of the book, my grandfather, John Morris. And I made a few slips, like in an early draft I sent to some cousins, and they were irate that I had... Uh, gotten my grandfather so wrong. And I realized, wow, you know, they know a lot more about this than I do. right And that was kind of scary, to be honest with you, Larry. I mean, I didn't know what I was getting myself into, but they turned out to be very helpful and supportive. And I just went ahead and did it. You know, I don't know anybody has to have a license to write a book. So I just, uh, you know, took it and ran with it. And I came out with a book.
1: And it's an amazing book, by the way. So in the epigraph, you quote, Edward Ball, Slaves in the Family. What did you do, I think I know why you did that, but I'm curious about the connection between what you wrote in the epigraph and the Morris family.
2: Well, you know, these are two very different books. Edward's book was a, was a deep dive into tracing the uh, descendants the, descendants of his white family and, the, and their slaves. And I didn't want to go down that road, but his, his remarks about the idea of feeling responsible for telling a story and feeling guilt over the past resonated with me because one of the things I really wanted to achieve in this book was to, uh, my, my grandfather John was born into a slave owning family in Virginia during the civil war right. and died when I was three years old. I mean, that's an amazing lifespan right there, but I, I really hoped to get rid of this idea that all slaves were hapless victims and all slave owners were horrible, monstrous people given the institution of American slavery was a horrible, horrible thing. And that's very much a part of the book, but I didn't want to get into the simplistic area of black and white, good and bad with no, uh, you know, all this cure with no gray area. I think life is a lot more complicated than that. And I wanted to try to get at the fact that both slaves and slave owners, were complex, multifaceted people. That's only a a small part of the book. But that quote from Edward Ball spoke to me on that level.
1: I want to give the subtitle to your book, The Age of Astonishment, and it says John Morris in the Miracle Century from the Civil War to the Cold War. And this is what captured my attention. If we only ask one question, I have a five-minute interview, and we're not going to go longer than that. You believe this period in American history, in a sense by extrapolation, world history, from the Civil War to the Cold War is more impactful than the current times that we live in. Is that an accurate assessment?
2: Well, I tell you what, when I was, uh, this is something I've been thinking about since I was a teenager. And after I had been thinking about it for, oh, I don't know, 50 years or so, a guy named Robert J. Gordon came out with a book called The Rise and Fall of American Growth, The U.S. Standard of Living Since the Civil War, a 700 page, deeply researched book in which he posits that the century from roughly 1870 to 1970 was the time of the most radical change in day-to-day life in the history of the human race. Now, those dates were almost identical to my grandfather's. He was born in 1863 and died in 1955. And when I had this big fat book full of, you know, all kinds of information about health and the germ theory and weaponry and and sanitation and and, uh, politics and, uh, you know, the eradication of the Native American, I mean, it's a broad, broad book. And it was it, it was it was my thesis that that my grandfather lived through the most amazing century in human history, and I thought, well, you know what? If Robert J. Gordon, who's a lot smarter than I am, says so, it must be true.
1: I'm a big movie fan. I'm thinking of Woody Allen's movie called Zelig, and I got a sense that your great grandfather, your grandfather was almost like a Zellig-like character in real life. So many things happen in his lifetime, in the whole Morris family lifetime. But I'm thinking, you know, I know, okay, it's Woody Allen and Zelig, but I'm thinking this is a real-life Zelic in a sense.
2: Yeah, he, he was around a lot of interesting moments so just by virtue of being alive at that time. But he also had, uh, he, he wasn't a tremendously colorful man, but he he had wonderful experiences. He was at the University of Berlin when W.E.B. Dubois was there and Mark Twain was in town. And, you know, he might have bumped up against them. His father was at the, the uh, exhibition in uh, the 1850s and, you know, uh, you know, he there were there were these wonderful people rolling through the, the their lives, and I thought, well, sure, he he was, you know, Mark Twain was in that hall that day that he was at a lecture, and he saw the great Twain uh, as a young man. I mean, John was a young man, Twain was a legend by then, and I thought, yeah. And then there were other events through his life where he was he was close at hand with with, uh, you know, major people. And, uh, you know, I thought, what a, what a great way to tell the story of all these changes through the eyes of one man who lived through them.
1: So this one man lived for 92 years. And what cropped into my head over 92 years, what he saw in the age of astonishment from the Civil War to the Cold War, did he get to assimilate and understand everything that what happened in that time frame?
2: Well, I don't think he understood at all, but I do know that he uh, he was a very old school scholarly gentleman from the South, you know, a Virginia family, taught at the University of Georgia for half a century. But he loved the movies. He loved to drive. He loved the radio. He, there were wonderful. There were things, the technological breakthroughs that happened in his lifetime that he embraced fully. Even though he was a very old school sort of silver haired southern gentleman, and and I like that. I like that aspect about him. I and mean, he wasn't just a guy walled away in academia. He was a guy living in the world and very much participating in it. He rejected a lot of it. But he embraced a lot of it
1: too. Two two things changed that time frame dramatically, in my humble opinion. The automobile and the radio. And I'll tell you why. The automobile expanded our horizons and the radio brought the world back into our living rooms. Two very different things, but also kind of influenced how we looked at the world our mobility and how we thought about the world
2: well i grew up in detroit where my father worked for ford motor company so i couldn't agree with you more about the first part of your idea about the automobiles but the radio, I, I agree a thousand percent with you. I think that was the most amazing change in day-to-day American life in, in terms of popular entertainment, uh, by about bringing people together. I'll tell you a story. I was a disc jockey a while back, and I was, I, I blew into Savannah, Georgia out of nowhere, and I t- talked my way into a job in a radio station. I had no qualifications other than a decent voice. And I got on the radio and I remembered all the disc jockeys from when I was a kid and growing up in Detroit in the 50s and 60s. And they were screaming and yelling Martha Jean the Queen, Ernie Durham, the soul of the town. You get lucky to live in the rocking town. You hear Mr. P <laughs> before the sun goes down. You know, and going on these great riffs. Where, and and, and I, was, I got on the air and I started doing this stuff. And my boss took me aside. and He says, Bill, you're missing it. He says, The thing about radio that's so great is that it's one person talking to another person. That person is in the room with you. FDR understood that. And that is the power of the medium. It's intimate. It's not you shouting to the whole city. It's you in the room, the bedroom with the, the girl listening to you or in the living room with a couple having drinks. It's you talking one-on-one and inviting them into your world. And I thought, you know what? that's that's right and i took that to heart and i had a very short radio career but yeah, you know, she was right
1: well we have we have one thing in common because i'm nowhere as talented as you but i have an ex- background in working in radio too in the local long island radio station but i think also about you mentioned fdr and i think of father coughlin coming into people's homes in the context of what's coming into homes today what you want to believe And what you should kind of discard. We're going through that right now, and it's coming right into our homes through radio, television, all kinds of media.
2: Yeah, well, the the social media. Yeah, Father Father Coughlin would probably be doing quite well if you were around today. I think he'd be he'd have a big fan base. (laughs) He was a little before my time, but you know, he was big in Detroit, of course. And uh, I'm glad I missed that part.
1: So I'm going to refer back to him. It was a pretty good movie that I saw. Um, And there's a scene in there from The Great Gatsby, the DiCaprio version. And they're driving from where they are, you know, on Long Island into the city. And they're passing through something called the Valley of Ashes. And I think it was your great grandfather had a similar experience driving to Philadelphia. Also going through a place where they were on the train and you had to roll the windows up. And it speaks dramatically about the haves and the have nots. In America.
2: Oh yeah, and that was the Centennial Exposition in 1876, and they took the train up from Virginia, and they had to go through the the, the rendering plants and where they were stripping hides and dyes, and then the rivers outside of Philadelphia. and It was just apparently a horrible. But there were no T.J. Eckleburg eyeglasses on, on their trip, unlike at the Valley of Ashes in Gatsby's uh, book, but yes very similar and and the the divisions were coming very apparent by the late 19th century and that in the eastern seaboard certainly with the industrialization and these were country people my my grandfather was you know he was served for the confederacy in the civil war uh these were rural people and uh, to take a train ride to a place like philadelphia must have been a true shock to their systems but yeah that was the valley of the ashes 1876 version
1: your grandfather I believe. Correct me if I'm off base. Had a love of language, and that was part of his reason to be. I believe, as an educator, teacher, and also doing some research, that fascinates me, that this thing about language really comes across because you have you, that stuff as a spoken word and from a DJ, you understand language probably better than the rest of us. How you put down a, from one word to the next word to the next word in a book? Do you can you think that's kind of coming through? The history of the family, I think your family, the Morris family, has very, in terms of the family tree, has very wide branches and very deep roots. And you're, uh, and you're the latest example of that.
2: Well, I've, I've, that's a very touching thought. I tell you, I have a lead cousin, John Nelson Morris, who was a wonderful poet, a decorated poet. Um, my father was a very fine newspaper reporter when I was born. I was born in Washington, D.C., and he was a reporter with Washington Post. And he, one of his colleagues was Ben Bradley, and another was a guy named uh, Al Lewis, who 20 years later broke the Watergate break in story. And uh, my Uncle Jack uh, was also a fine reporter with the New York Times. So, yeah, there is some literary uh, ink in the, in the family veins. And my, but my grandfather, John, was a true scholar. I mean, he studied etymology. He studied the origins of names. He wrote 10-page articles on where the, Shakespeare got his name. That's over my head, Larry. I, I can't go down that, that avenue. He was he was very deep into the, the scholarly aspects, and was a big fan of phonetic spelling. By right, the way, right, which uh, George Bernard Shaw was fond of. Uh, President Theodore Roosevelt tried to adopt it. Uh, my grandfather John was very big on it. In fact, Uncle Jack's son John, who was a pr- very fine professional football player. Uh, he spelled he spelled his name J O N. And John, my cousin, told me that his his father, Uncle Jack, had dropped the H from the name in deference to John, the grandfather, and his his fascination with phonetic spelling
1: so i'm going to jump way ahead and then we'll kind of circle back i want to reset for a second my guess is bill mars the book is called the age of astonishment john mars in the miracle century from the civil war to the cold war once again i'm pulling from popular culture six degrees of separation if you don't want to mind playing this game um You mentioned John Morris, the center for the Boston Patriots, when they were in AFL. I remember the the first iteration of the New York Jets in AFL. And so the connection is John Morris, a Playboy bunny, and a missing manuscript that finally shows up that you get a chance to look at. You want to tell us that story?
2: Oh, yeah. This was a good one. Um, I got assigned to write an advanced obituary of Hugh Hefner, great uh liberator of women uh you know and i i love i love obituaries always have and I, I i finally got one published in the new york times a while back which was a big kick for me but anyhow i get this assignment to write an advanced obituary for hugh hefner and i'm thinking to myself well now everybody knows who hugh hefner was and they think they know his story how am i going to tell this story in a different way and then a light bulb went off and i thought aha my cousin john's uh, the football player married a playboy bunny named gail and so i called them up and i said gail i'm working on an advanced obituary of, of Hugh hefner uh you want to talk about your time as a bunny and she said i'd love to and i was going into this thinking i'm gonna you know write a slam job on Hugh hefner because a lot of people myself included think he had a checkered kind of influence on the world. Right. well my, my s- s- cousin-in-law gail loved her job. She loved working at the playboy club first in San Francisco and then in Boston where she met John and she had nothing but good things to say about Hugh Hefner. And I thought, well, there goes that obituary. I had to rewrite that thing in my head, but then John came back on the line and then things got interesting. And I I said, well, you know, John, I'm working on a book about our grandfather. And he says, well, you know, he was a big fan of phonetic spelling. And I said, yeah, yeah. And he told me the story about dropping the H from his name. And then he said to me, um, you know you wrote a dictionary and i said well yeah my father told me that he spent his life writing a german english dictionary and my father tried to sell it to new york publishers after the war after the second world war nobody was buying it and i just assumed it was lost to time and gone and my cousin john said oh no no it's in boxes up in my attic you want to have a look and i said yes okay So I got got in my car and drove down to Georgia and uh, went in there and there, all six boxes in his driveway and he gave them to me and I took them back home. And that was a major, major little bit of serendipity, but it really changed the course of the book. And it was fairly late in the writing of the book that this surprise just dropped into my lap. I was like, wow.
1: I want to go back a little bit because, as you said, your grandfather liked to travel. He spent a lot of time, I believe, going to Germany and Berlin mm-hmm. and the cities in that area. And they, he took your father, I believe, Richard, the 19, in 1936 when, the, as we call it, the Nazi Olympics was going on. What, what stories can you tell us about that? It's a famous Olympics. They cleaned up the city because the world was watching. And as soon as it was over, it went back to what they were going to do to the jews in that country
2: yeah well actually my father you're a little bit off he he they went over in 37 but they traveled with a woman named marion foster washburn she had she had she was a traveling companion an old friend of my my grandparents and a writer of some renown herself but she had been at the olympics in 36 and she regaled them with stories about how uh you know, the one that really got me was when she was sitting in there in the stadium when Jesse Owens and a guy from University of Georgia who she knew named Speck Towns were out on the track running. And suddenly there was a big rippling roar and Hitler was coming in to sit in a seat not far from where she was sitting there eating a hot dog. And she said, when he came in, everybody raised their right arms and she could see their hands trembling with sort of awe and reverence and that really really struck her and and when she told this story to my father it struck my father too he was a 15 year old boy at the time and she was very very uh sort of i don't know just amazed by the electric magnitude of this this man's appeal with this hundred thousand people in a stadium rising and kind of in a show of almost worship for his his presence and then my father, they were they went on from uh, that trip. They went from London to Estonia and then down to, to Berlin. And in Berlin, my father was given a dime and you know told to get lost every day while my grandfather was in the library. Right. And my father would be sitting on the streetcar and suddenly these guys in brown shirts would come on the car and everybody jumped up and raised their hands in the air. See how. And my father said, hey, that's kind of fun, you know. Zig Heil, he'd get in there and get in doing it and went home at night and said, no, Papa, what, what was that all about? Why are these people throwing their hands up in the air? And my grandfather just kind of shook his head and said that, you know, I tried to explain to him, this is a bad thing coming, and it's not going to stop and get ready. Uh, and that, that was that was my father's education to fascism when he was a naive, you know, country boy from Georgia at the age of 15.
1: Now, here's a tidbit about uh Adolf Hitler, he was having problems with his voice and he had to bring a personal doctor to work on that because he knew he lost his voice because his whole being was being this dynamic speaker, a rabble raiser in a sense. And his voice was the key to what he was besides the mustache. So I, I just came across that little known fact, but he, he was getting treatments for his voice. I want to go back to something else that you write about in the book called The Great Strike – of 1871, So I'm off a year or two like I was with the previous question. Feel free to correct me. But I believe that you said this is as close as a nation has come to class warfare. Is that accurate?
2: I don't know. I think it is because I look at what's going on right now. I mean, think about the... Uh, you know the 1930s, the 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 Battle of the Overpass in Detroit, uh, Walter Ruther, the the union organizers, uh, the the shirtwaist factory. These were right. these were these were big big moments of labor and class unrest. I think the 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 Black Lives Matter uh, movement was another expression of this, but I don't think it was ever quite as close to the bone. This is my reading of history. I'm not an historian. I'm basically a journalist and a novelist and a reporter, but I think that that moment was there was a, a real fissure in the classes, class consciousness in America, and I think it was as close as we've ever come to that kind of a breakdown. And I don't think it's possible anymore. I mean, I think that the classes now have been so sedated and so anesthetized that there's no real possibility of that happening anymore. I don't, I don't think so.
1: You know, I'm a fan of comedians, especially one to do social commentary, and it was just something on HBO, I think a two-part series but with this featuring George Carlin. And this is what Carlin said. He said, we're really great at killing, but we're not good at nothing else. And I think about the history of wars in this country. We went through a period leading up to World War I where there was a big battle in this country about neutrality and we were kind of forced into the war with the sinking, I think, was the Lusitania that was sunk, I believe? That's right. Which we talked about in a previous episode, and we got dragged in because of that. We didn't want to get in the way of the, what was going on between Britain and Germany. And I think Carlin's, Carlin's observations are so acute, and I think, once again, about your family's history with the Civil War, World War One, and from there, and I'm curious about your thoughts about what he said and how prescient he probably was.
2: Well, I think he's absolutely right. And I also like to, George Carlin for his not to get off the subject. We'll come back to that. But, you know, it's saying things like you know, just because you got 50 brands of toothpaste you can to- choose from doesn't mean you're free. Right, right. Right? You know, this illusion that consumer goods is some sort of badge of any kind of true freedom. I, George Carlin was a genius in my book. But to go back to the comments on war. Um, my grandfather John was a pacifist, uh, very much a pacifist, opposed the entry into the First World War, opposed the entry into the Second World War until Pearl Harbor, and then ended up teaching German to uh, officer candidates because his, his sons, two of his sons were in the army and he felt that it was, it was a war that you just couldn't not participate in. And that really went against his pacifist tendencies that he had had all of his life. And this was fairly late in his life. He was in his eighties by then, but he, he did indeed participate in a war effort. And I think that was probably a jarring experience for him, but he did it. And, um, it, both of his sons came home alive. So including my father, so it worked out.
1: There's a part of the book which I had to stop. And I'm not just saying this because I'm talking to you and down the road people are going to hear this, but it got me in such a, got me in such a visceral manner that I had to stop and think. You write about lynchings in the South, and I think about Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit. But then you go to describe, oh God, you mentioned, well, you mentioned Leo Frank, but you mentioned John Lee and even... I believe Hart, I think his name was, H-E-R-D-T, I believe. And what they did to those two men goes beyond, and lynchings are horrible, but what it did to them was almost indescribable.
2: Well, it became a a form of popular entertainment. That's the thing I learned while researching the book. I I knew some things about lynching, but I didn't realize the the spectacle that it had become in... in, uh, in the south and that it had to be it was almost as though if it, if it didn't involve rococo torture it wasn't satisfactory to the mob right, right. and i didn't i didn't know about that you know there was a there was a moment in the book which you may recall where my aunt margarita my father's eldest sibling she was almost a grandmother to me one day she says we're going for a drive i was visiting her in athens georgia she says we're going for a drive she took me out, to, out drove out of town and parked in front of a big old pine tree and on a rolling, it was wintertime and sort of brown grass and whistling wind. And she looked at the tree and said, your your grandfather, my father, drove me out here one day in 1921 to show me that that was where they lynched a man. And it was the only lynching in that part of Georgia during the, the, the heyday of that horrible practice. And I was stunned to think that my aunt was alive when this was going on and i thought oh man i said well i didn't know what to say and i said well did they hang him and she said oh no no they burned him alive and then i did started researching lynching and that was very common actually and because it was slower and they could they could start the fire and douse it and get mm-hmm. him to try to confess mm-hmm. and then pour more gasoline i mean it was just you know cutting off digits and the the, the horrors of it were a, a real eye-opener to me I, I just assumed they hanged people and it was over with which is horrible enough but no it was a it was a community spectacle. They sold postcards at the scene, and you know, sold fingers and put them in jars and sold them in Atlanta. Uh, just, uh, and, you know, and Ida B. Wells, to, to her infinite credit, was chronicling all this. And uh, Walter White, who could pass for white, uh, was infiltrating the white mobs and writing about it for uh, for, for the NAACP. And uh, these were these were the things I learned while researching the book that were not not enjoyable, but very much worth knowing. I mean, this is this you talk about George Carlin and war, this is also a part of American history. And you know, this this critical race theory, people don't don't want to teach critical race theory that, that, that racism is systemic in America. I don't see how you could teach American history without teaching. Critical race theory I mean when you when you start delving into the history of lynching and so forth. but that's my opinion.
1: Before we gonna close out the segment, I want to mention something else. There's a terrific terrific book called cast by Isabel Wilkerson and what she wrote, writes in that book is the One Drop of Blood Theory which which is the KK had in Plessy versus Ferguson and the whole Jim Crow issues in the South. And the Germans came over to come over to here to this country to study how we handle uh, black Americans. And they said even for them, one drop of blood was too much in terms of how they're going to deal with the Jewish problem. And I, that's kind of the beauty of what you write, try, tying into other things that I've come across and try to think about. And you kind of tie things together for me. So I thank you for that. As we end every segment with something I call, What Did I Miss?, what did I get wrong? So Bill Morris, run with that one, if you don't mind.
2: Um, you don't seem like you missed a whole lot. You got a date wrong, which ain't, ain't too bad. Um, no, I, I, I don't think you missed much, Larry. I, I mean, I think you, you get it. I mean, this was a story of a of a man from a very specific part of the world who lived a life that I thought was a, a vehicle for telling a story of an amazing century in American history. Not all of it pretty. A lot of it very grim and dark. Some of it dazzlingly exciting. You know, technolo- technological change and, and and advances in medicine and so forth, entertainment. Um, but uh, I, I think I think you got it. It's uh, it's a, it's a story of one man's journey through an amazing century.
1: Well, what I have is the copy of the book. My guest has been Bill Mars. The Age of Astonishment. John Morris in the Miracle Century from the Civil War to the Cold War. John, it's been a pleasure to finally meet you, and hopefully we'll touch base down the road. Okay, thank you, Larry. Uh, Larry Davidson, this is the podcast, Artful Periscope. After the break, Stacey Murphy joins us to talk about her novel, The Unquiet Dead. We'll be right back.
0: The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com.
1: I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast Artful Periscope. Stacy Murphy is the author of the acclaimed book, The Unquiet Dead. She's also written A Deadly Fortune. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast Artful Periscope. Welcome back to the program. She grew up near Nashville, Tennessee. She began writing historical fiction as a way to force herself to stay off of Twitter in the evenings that I capture that accurately
3: you did indeed thank you so much
1: for having me on the show all right so we're we're gonna dive into the book but who or what interests you before we kind of dissect the book because i think you have an interesting background and you think about a lot of things so besides the book what person interests you or what events have interest to you
3: um well I think, um, talking about why I started writing, I, I I have always been a reader, but I was not a writer. Right. And um, when I say I started writing a deadly fortune to keep myself off of Twitter in the evenings, it's because at the time I was working as a lobbyist for a nonprofit that worked on international reproductive health and rights. And if you will recall in March of 2017, some things that happened, in the world of that um, made that a particularly stressful time to be working in that arena. And I was on Twitter one evening and thought, Oh, I'm going to have a stroke if I don't come <laughs> up with something else to think about in the right, next couple right. of years. And so that is what I did. I decided that it was time to, to try my hand at actually writing something. And so that's how I, I jumped in.
1: So if and, I, if, all right. If I hear you correctly, writing, did that become what I call your safe Harbor a way to get away was, from what you're dealing with
3: get away from um, the real world. And it's really quite ironic that the place I decided I'd rather spend my time was in a 19th century insane asylum uh, in in a deadly fortune. But that was um, preferable to Washington, D.C. in 2017. So
1: So I I guess we could give you a genre and you can correct me. It's historical fiction. And I think about another great writer I did. I did a program with called Marie Benedict, who also wrote uh, Carnegie's Maid. And also touch upon the, the history of the development of libraries. So, what does historical fiction allow you to do that satisfies your urge to put something on the written page?
3: Oh, um, well, when I started writing *A Deadly Fortune*, I really, I really thought about, you know, how to mash together all of the elements that I enjoy in fiction, and it was obviously going to be historical because I love dipping into the past and trying to recreate uh, another time period. And it was, it was almost a given that it would be that Gilded Age or that Victorian time period, because I, you know, that's where I love to read. And so it was sort of natural that that was where I would end up writing. Um, one of my all time favorite books is The Alienist. Kayla, and so I, know, I, I know
1: Caleb, I interviewed him. Oh,
3: love, love The Alienist. I think right. that's a, that's one of my very favorite books. And I thought, okay, so I'm pitching this as the alienist if Sarah Howard were psychic. Um, (laughs) And I thought, okay, I want something that has that feel uh, with a female protagonist, and I want to add a little um, touch of the paranormal, uh, just because that's another thing that I really enjoy in books is the little touch of the uncanny. So I, I sort of started figuring out how to mash all of that together, and A Deadly Fortune came about. And then fortunately, a year or so later, I got another contract to do the sequel, which was The Unquiet Dead.
1: So I think about pairings, you pairing mm-hmm. Amelia with Jonas. That's mm-hmm. an interesting pairing. And there's a, there's a thing that was recently on uh, PBS called Miss Scarlet and the Duke taking place about 10 years early, 1882 in London. And another really interesting pairing takes place in Vienna with a psychiatrist and a detective. So do you, how important, I'm kind of simplifying this, when I'm a comma sooner, consumer of interesting television as well as interesting books, that putting people together as a partnership, in a sense, elevates what you tried to do?
3: Oh, absolutely. Because you get um, that, that Amelia and Jonas pairing. I, you know, Amelia was the first character that I came up with. And I said, okay, so I want... I want an orphan. I want somebody without resources. I want somebody without blood ties. But at the same time, I love the concept of found family. And so I wanted her to have not a blood relationship, but something that was chosen and was as deep and as intimate as any uh, family relationship and um but then i I ended up i decided on making giving her a foster brother and then i ultimately decided to make him gay because i did not want any hint of a romantic pairing or anybody anybody rooting for that Um, because i wanted that to be um a, a pure and dedicated relationship that was not based on blood but that was as strong and as as uh real as any anything else could be and um it, those those relationships i think are so important because you get two different perspectives and it gives you so much opportunity for conflict in the narrative because even if you've got people who care about one another very deeply or absolutely dedicated to each other they are different people with different needs and different perspectives on things and you can you can it's so much richer to have that undercurrent of personal narrative happening while you're also doing external plots.
1: so for the people listening to this that want to be a writer or are writers right now, you said these two books, and it's a little bit of a chicken and egg, which book came first, by the way, it was like climbing a mountain. So what were you you referring to?
3: Well, uh, you know, I, having not been a writer prior to writing A Deadly Fortune, I just sort of said, well, I'm going to do this. And I jumped right into the deep end. I did not have I did not have any previously abandoned novels. I did not have any short stories that I had written. I jumped right into sort of the hardest form, I think, of, of immediately for my very first attempt at fiction, jumping into writing a full-length novel, and already having the idea that it that it could be a series that I that I wanted to revisit these characters. So, you know, the first book I was just floundering around and I didn't know what I was doing and I had just committed to myself that I was going to finish it. I was going to finish it and I was going to give it what I had to give and do the best that I could with it. But I didn't have any sense of what I was getting into, um, both with thing of it and then the editing and the whole publishing process. And uh, it was very serendipitous the way it all ended up working out and, um. It, you know, it was an enormous amount of work. It was more work than I ever anticipated it actually being, and which sounds really naive, but, you know, I thought it would be work, and it was way more than that. Mm-hmm. And then um, I was so proud of it when it was done and so pleased when it was published. And then the publisher said, yes, we want the sequel. And I was simultaneously so ecstatic about that and then also just like, oh, you mean I have to do that again? Right. Oh, I, I, I don't know. I, you know, I. The first one was it was like climbing a mountain in the dark. You just, I didn't know where the top of it was. I just kept going. And with the second one, it's it's the clear light of day. You stand at the bottom and you think, oh man, I, I don't know how I'm going to get all the way up there again.
1: I think a lot about this. Is me having too much time on my hands when I'm reading books and trying to make notes about Amelia Matthew. This is this is an strange question. You can dismiss that. But I'm fascinated by. Characters' names and how they come into play, and I have in my notes because this is the mistake I made. I'm writing Amelia Matthews with an S at the yes. end, and and then I've thought about that. Why was it Matthew as opposed to Matthews?
3: Okay, this is actually a fantastic question, um, and there is a reason for it. And if I end up getting to write a book three, I might actually end up exploring it. But if you'll notice that Jonas also has the last his last name is Vincent, right? So they have these sort of first name, last names. And uh, this is entirely made up, uh, but they grew up in, in the confines of the book. They grew up in a Catholic orphan asylum. And I have no idea. So the, the orphan asylum was a real place and there's a lot of history of it in a deadly fortune. And all of that is accurate and taken from, from historical records. Um, but they had a lot of abandoned babies. And I just wondered how they named the babies. And I decided that in the world of, of my book, they would give the babies last names based on the saints day on which they were either born or came to the asylum okay so amelia's birthday was saint matthew's day
1: and then saint vincent. and so
3: and saint vincent and so that's that's how i decided um to, to make those names and a lot of people do do the, the matthews uh thing and i had if i'd thought about that ahead of time i, I might have gone a different way but that's a that's a sort of little um, background secret to my world that I've not actually explored in the books, but there, there was a reason for it.
1: So you mentioned The Gilded Age. We talked about that with a friend of mine who writes historical fiction, Kevin Baker, who's written a trilogy, and he's a terrific writer. So he came on the guest just to talk about that because he knows how accurate that TV program was. And when I think about your book, your book is the other side of the coin. The Gilded mm-hmm. Age, is, for the majority of the time, is about the very the wealthy and the old money. Is one one or two scenes of one of the housekeepers in one of the mansions goes back to, and you see where her mother lives, and that gives us a view. You give us a view. I don't know if it's fair to, for me to say the underclass, but you represent that very well. So really, the TV series is one thing. Your book really is a companion piece.
3: I, I think so, and I, I um, and you know, the Gilded Age is a lot of fun to write about because. Of the great dramatic disparities, the, the contrasts. You have this enormously wealthy upper class, the, the 1% of the 1%. And then, um, you know, everybody else, the, the grinding poverty that existed during that time was just, um, just astonishing the degree to which people lived in just abject poverty. And I, I wanted to write characters that could straddle both of those worlds. Right. And, and Amelia and Jonas have kind of one foot in each of those worlds because they're working in this fancy nightclub and because uh, you know, of their history as con artists and swindlers, they are sort of able to ape these manners and mores and they can fake it well enough in in that sort of 1% world. Um, But they're very much of that underclass and familiar and comfortable with that underclass. And so I, I really wanted to write characters who, because I wanted to be able to include both sides of, of that Gilded Age coin in the book I needed characters who could who could kind of code switch
1: We're gonna and go re- back and forth We're going to reset my guess as the author The Unquiet Dead Stacey Murphy I'm Larry Davidson this is the podcast Artful Periscope there, it takes place years earlier but The Gangs of New York is an amazing piece Daniel Day-Lewis He lives the part. In fact, he never comes out of character. DiCaprio's a gifted actor, too. And the reason why I mention that is because it takes a place in the five points where the gangs were. And you touch upon that. So set the scene in the book in in time for 1893, I think it is now. Mm -hmm. Yes, 1893. The five points near the tombs, near the courts. And once again, as a fan of previous movies and books, that you kind of touch upon this. But I think that's really interesting if you don't mind amplifying on that.
3: Sure, um, you know I, I, all historical fiction writers have to figure out where where they're going to draw their line between history and fiction in their work. How much of each are they going to include, and what what is important to them to emphasize? And I fall on the side of if I can find an accurate historical detail that adds something to the narrative and and, and sets the scene, then I absolutely do that. So talking about neighborhoods, talking about architecture, talking about uh, um, so sort of all of those things, as much as it possibly can be, I take it from from real history, um, including things like any place where there's a newspaper headline or a newspaper story referenced. I, I try to take an accurate uh, newspaper headline. Uh, in, in A Deadly Fortune, early in the, in the book, there's a, a time where Jonas is reading Amelia's uh, newspaper, the newspaper headlines over, over breakfast, and all of those newspaper headlines are taken from the New York Times during right. the week during which the book would have actually been set. Because that's all there, and if I can find it and use it, why wouldn't I do that? I just, I just love adding that kind of flavor. Um, and my very favorite Easter egg in either book is is in a deadly fortune um the blackwell's island insane asylum is the site of much of that book and at one point i needed a telephone call and i thought well i I wonder if the asylum, you know, telephones were a thing in 1893, but I didn't didn't know how far they'd penetrated into sort of civil New York. And so I started Googling and God bless whoever did this, but somebody had found an actual 1893 New York City City Services telephone directory and had scanned it online. And I found the actual telephone number for the Blackwells Island Insane Asylum and I put it in the book. Um, You know, and it doesn't matter to the plot but it feeds something in my soul to know that it's in there and that it's accurate and that, that I, you know, have snuck that level of detail in wherever I can. Um, so again, neighborhoods, buildings, um, historical events, things that were happening at the time that I sort of reference in passing any, any of that, that I, that I include, I try to make it, accurate and from the actual time from the actual
1: record just because that just like i said it feeds my soul so that's a eureka moment for you once there's a great little thing on tv right now called the time traveler's wife where he jumps back and forth and back and forth i got a sense listening to you watching you on through zoom that if you could go back you would really enjoy in a sense if you go back and forth this is a time that you really love you focus your books there but going back walk, walking through washington square park now all of us have gone through washington square park in different points in our life and look at the architecture in new york city and kind of walk around a lot because it's fun to walk and look at people but i wonder if you could go back to this time would you really enjoy it
3: i think i would enjoy it's like so many other times I would enjoy it as a tourist. Okay. Very briefly as a, as a, as a woman, it's not a time that I would have wanted to live. I'm very grateful that that I live in a time with um, the right to vote and, and the right to have a job and modern birth control and all of those, all of those fun things. Um, But if I could go for an hour or so, and if I could be sure and come back whenever I wanted, I, yes, I would, I would love to go and, and poke around.
1: Now, we haven't given away too much of the book. And I said, phrase, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. I'm not going to do that. But we do know there are three young children that are found dead. And we do know that there's one missing child. And Amos Alston is leaning over the body of a dead child. And that reminds me, because I just had this discussion in another episode of what's called Confirmation Bias – They saw him. He's um, biracial, by the way. He's leaning over a body of a dead child, and they take him away because they consider him, I I sense, almost uh, black American, African American, and he had to have done it. He had to have done it, and this sets up everything. We mentioned the tombs. The experience he has when he's in jail is horrific, but were you thinking about what we call today confirmation bias?
3: Oh, absolutely. And I was thinking, I I had the idea for the plot and the ending of The Unquiet Dead before I had finished writing A Deadly Fortune. Uh, I came across, while researching for A Deadly Fortune, I came across the story of Morgan and Annie Austin. Right. And they became Miles and Polly. Uh, they were a real interracial couple living in you know, the Greenwich Village area, the Minetta Lane area of, of New York City in that time period. And they had a 15-year-old son who worked at a commercial laundry. And I read that Morgan Austin had been a waiter. A lot of black men at the time were waiters. And I thought, oh, he's a waiter at the club. That's that's the how they get involved. That's how Amelia and Jonas get involved in this. And um, so I had that idea along about 2018 and tucked it away, hopefully to get to use later. And then of course Um, A Deadly Fortune came out in uh, January 2021 and so in the meantime the the murder of George Floyd had happened and uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and all of the the protests that happened and I had a real question about whether or not I should still write that story Right. Um, you know because I'm a well-meaning white lady and there are a lot of ways that well-meaning white ladies get race and racism and talking about whiteness and talking about blackness and the criminal justice system, and and there are just a lot of ways to get that wrong. Um, So I really thought through about, you know, how did I, did I still want to write that story? Did I still feel like it was an appropriate thing for for me to write? And um, the, the story was just so compelling, and I... Wanted to be very thoughtful about how I did it, so I, you know, I had a sensitivity reader to to read for um, racial issues, right. and really thought about how I wanted to approach it. Um, but but yeah, I mean the, and that's another reason I think that the, the Gilded Age is so fascinating for a lot of people is that it really mirrors a lot of the things that are still happening today, that enormous gap between rich and poor the, um, sort of racial turmoil, the gender turmoil, the things that are, that are really, that that we're still fighting today in, in this, a lot of the same ways and police violence and brutality, especially against people of color. And, um, the parallels were just too stark, not to go ahead and 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 tell the story because I I really felt like it was it was relevant.
1: So, Stacy, you mentioned the key word uh, parallels. I want to talk to you about. It's obvious there was a lot of infant mortality in the time frame you write about. But if you mm-hmm. look at the list of Westernized countries, industrial mm-hmm. countries, we are way down the list to this day with infant Absolutely. mortality. So for me, you're tying in the obvious in the book, because of the sanitary conditions and everything else, and lack of medical care, especially if you're a minority, and the fact that most people don't even realize we're not doing a great job in this country with infant mortality. No, the
3: United States the United States has one of the worst maternal mortality rates in any developed country. And, it, and it's, again, it's still much, much higher for Black and Indigenous women. Um, they're way more likely to die in childbirth than white women, even controlling for education and income and all of those other things that we think should make a difference, um, so it's it's medical bias, it's the effects of systemic racism. All of those things are still very real and very present and having a lot of the same the same impacts that that we saw in the 19th century.
1: So, getting towards the back end, I watched your bookstore appearance on YouTube, and I wonder if. And I think about this a lot because we're meeting for the first time. I'm not a writer. I'm asking you questions, hopefully uh, halfway decent questions. Are you more comfortable an interview with a fellow writer than somebody that's outside of the profession in terms of understanding what you do?
3: I don't think it's necessarily a question of comfort. Um, there is something about a fellow writer knowing if you if – this is going to sound this is going to sound um possibly arrogant but but if you haven't written a book you don't know how much work it is like you you use as an out al- and before i had done it i right. thought oh right. that, that is a lot of work but i did not know how much and how much it would occupy my mind how much it would occupy my time even when i wasn't writing um i didn't know anything about the publishing process and most people who are not involved with publishing don't know very much about it um, so there's definitely a kinship when I'm being interviewed by another writer, but in terms of comfort in, in asking questions or answering questions or talking about the book, um, I, I, I love public speaking and I love talking about my books. Uh, I love doing book clubs, sitting down with people who have really read and interacted with the book. Um, so yeah, I, I, I love talking about this process and talking about these characters. and. And I'm really proud of this work that I did and um, you know, hope that other people will enjoy it.
1: So uh, uh, this is just me trying to glean something from where the first two books go and where you may be going. Or uh, do you have a sequel with some of the four main characters because they seem to be coming together once again pairings and alliances, and I think you're, you know, well you do what a writer does you kind of throw it out there whether it interests your agent or your publicist or the publisher or whatever or the readers out there so I and you kind of kind of giving me a, a, an interesting look as I, I pose this question but I got a feeling that people are going to be disappointed if you don't further pursue what you've done in the first two books.
3: Well, I wish that was entirely up to me. It's, it's not, um, I, my both contracts have been one book contracts so far and I don't have a contract yet. Knockwood wood right. for a book three, although I would love to write one and I do have, I have ideas for probably five or six books with these characters, but I definitely do have an idea for a book three. Um, I have, uh, The Emily character who was introduced at the dinner party, uh, my intention would be to bring her back in a book three and and have her play a role in, in the plot.
1: Well, I like her because she likes – I think she's the one who likes to go outside and smoke cigarettes after the dinner yes, party, Yes, she right? was the
3: one who snuck out to smoke a cigarette during so dinner. I, yeah.
1: I like the fact that even though they don't have the vote yet and things like that, you can see kind of where her thought process is. She's not going to yes. go with the accepted times and the social mores and things like that. So I'm going to ask one last question because I was always curious about if you have downtime, who whose book would you pick up and read just to relax for yourself?
3: Oh, let's see. Um, so when I'm writing in the Gilded Age, or so when I'm when I was writing my two books, I tried not to read new things in that same right. genre. Um, although when I'm not ac- actively writing, I love Deanna Rayborn, her Ver- uh, Veronica Speedwell series, or her Julia Gray series. Like two of my very favorites. Um, right now, I'm, I read pretty widely, and right now I'm reading the Murderbot series by Martha Wells. So I love science fiction and fantasy. Um, I'm not a huge literary fan. I like genre. I, you know, I like nice writing, but I also really like fun plot and sometimes explosions. Okay. Um, so yeah, yeah I, I pick up I pick up sci fi or fantasy. I, I read a lot of contemporary mysteries. Uh, which I'm so glad I don't, I don't write because all the forensics would make me crazy. Um, That's another, that's another nice thing about writing historical mysteries is you can sort of leave blood and fingerprints everywhere and, and and still make a mystery out of it.
1: So we always end every segment with what did I miss? What did I get wrong? So what did I miss? What did I get wrong?
3: Oh, Um, I don't think you got anything wrong. Um, I'd love to talk just a tiny bit more about the historical stuff that I included just because it's fun. Um, and one thing that I will will mention uh, since I've been given the opportunity here is uh, talking about Washington Square Park. All the things that I learned from researching uh, the settings and the time periods of these books, I didn't know until I started researching that Washington Square Park was a potter's field. And there are still something like 20,000 bodies buried under Washington Square Park. And um, back in uh, the sort of colonial and and earlier days, it was a potter's field and an execution ground. And the ghost that Amelia encounters in both books is based on um, Rose Butler, who was the last recorded person to have been executed in Washington Square Park on the gallows there. And she was a young enslaved woman who was hanged for um, setting fire to her enslaver's home right. and so I wanted to put her in um, I feel like that's like putting her in one of those little historical markers like this this thing happened here and I don't know if she's a pissed off ghost but she has every right to be and so I thought I thought well when I read about that story I thought well I'm going to put her in so
1: well, thank you for that. Uh, there's a lot more we could talk about. I'm fascinated by Amelia and what, she, what the trance that you goes through. But maybe you want to come up back again. We'll follow up some more of the book because I'd love to talk to you again.
3: Oh, I'd absolutely love to.
1: Uh, this is the podcast, Artful Periscope. I'm Larry Davids. I want to thank Bill Morris and Stacey Murphy. We'll be back sometime in the future. Take care. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is
0: brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Cricifaro, sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tail that affects us all.